Good evening. My name is Vince, and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank you very much for inviting me here. It's a privilege to do this, and uh, I don't want to forget that. Uh, it's not a chore. It's uh, an honor to be able to do it. And I'm happy that you invited me. And I expect if my wife were a better member of AA, she'd be here too. <laughs> but you are in for a treat tomorrow morning because Mary's a terrific speaker. She's, just, she's great. And she's a, we were friends for many, many years. And uh, I love her very much. And I'm glad that she's going to be here tomorrow. And, and I, I wanna, you know, it's, you go to these things and you go to them. And some are different than others. And... There's never a good reason why, I suppose, but at some of them, and this is one of them, uh, there's a spirit here, and it's been here since yesterday when I got here, and I don't, it's hard, it, I like to call it music. It's the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not the lyrics, it's the music, and you can feel it, and you can hear it, and I've heard it all weekend. And uh, I'm just, I've been moved and touched. The speakers have been great. I, uh, I, I've known Sandy for years, and I've never heard her speak before. And I, I really enjoyed uh, listening to her yesterday. And Gary, I've never heard him talk, and I've known him for years. And his talk was wonderful. And I just met Donna, and she was great. And uh, then there was the Al-Anon. <laughs> Ellen. who was absolutely terrific, I will tell you. Uh, and it was just a marvelous talk, and I was glad I had the opportunity to, uh, to be here. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here, and I feel good tonight, and I'm glad that I'm here in Port Angeles, Washington. And if you are new here tonight, I am glad that you're here too. And I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to know that that's where you are tonight. <laughs> You're in AA, <laughs> which is not a pretty prospect, is it? I mean, good God. Of all of the things that could have happened to you, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, how lame is that? I mean, I, you know, I don't know of anywhere I would not have rather be than, than AA when I was new. I mean, God almighty. And here you are. And you have nowhere else to go. <laughs> this is it. This is it. There's nowhere else for you to go. And if you're new here tonight, we've never met you. But we know a great deal about you. <laughs> so it's amazing. We know that you, uh, you have had a bad year. <laughs> we know that for sure. We also know that if you're anything at all like I was when I was in my very first AA meeting, you were utterly convinced down deep in your soul that you are not really alcoholic, <laughs> that your case is different, and you are not like them. And we would like you to know that if you feel that way, the very fact that you feel that way means that you are precisely like us. <laughs> that is the requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous, as it turns out. Utterly convinced you're in the wrong place and that you don't fit, that your case is different, that you're kind of a right-handed person in a left-handed world, and, and you've ended up in AA. And that was certainly the way that I felt at my first AA meeting, which was a long time ago. It was in November of 1965. I know girls. It, you, you really, 
I can't be that old, can I? Right? I, I understand what you're thinking. Well, I was only seven at that meeting, so it, it, it's true, I'm not. But it was in the basement of a Presbyterian church in Long Beach, California, and it was on a very cold, rainy November night. And I always want to remember why I was in the basement of that church. And if you're new here tonight, I'd like to tell you, and maybe you will feel at ease. I was not there because I was in search of sobriety, or peace of mind, or quiet heart, or serenity, which was a great word that I... I was 23 years old. What the hell did I want with serenity? If, if you're new and young here and you want serenity, go see a therapist. <laughs> you know, you really, I, I had none of that motivation to be at my first AA meeting. I was there because I was, I, I was uh, well, I had on a filthy pair of jeans and a ripped T-shirt. I had not shaved or bathed in over a week, and I just spent the previous five days in the Long Beach City Jail due to a series of unfortunate circumstances that were clearly not my fault. The uh, <laughs> police department in Long Beach, California is fascist. I don't know if you know that or not. If you've ever been in Long Beach, you would find that out, you would discover that. Uh, and they had abused my civil rights, as it turned out, on a regular basis. And I would end up in the Long Beach City Jail often, or so it seemed. And this was the latest of those occasions. And I ended up in the basement of this Presbyterian church. And the meeting was a very exciting meeting. It was a speaker meeting. It was a Los Altos meeting. Sandy remembers that meeting. It was very, it was really, it, it was 1965. And you must remember, there was not an AA meeting on every corner every night in those days. And this was the big event. It was the big speaker meeting in that area. And boy, everybody came. And they, the Al-Anons came and the AAs came. And the ladies wore dresses and the men wore coats and ties. I mean, it was a big deal on Friday night in Los Altos and Long Beach, California. And it, it was maybe two or three hundred people, and it was an exciting, dynamic, uplifting uh, AA meeting. Uh, and the most overwhelming characteristic of that meeting is that when I remember when I walked in there, I said, nobody in the room looked like an alcoholic. Nobody looked, they all looked too good. They all looked, or what I perceived an alcoholic to look like. Everybody looked great, and nobody looked like an alcoholic. And if you were to wander into that room on any given Friday night and someone were to say to you, you're in a room filled with alcoholics, can you pick them out? You would not be able to pick them out. I, on that given night, night, you'd pick me out. <laughs> that, on that night, you would have. I had, you know, uh, I was clearly an alcoholic. And I sat in the back of the room up against the wall. I should also tell you, I'm Irish and I'm Catholic. And I'm from New Jersey. And I have difficulty with people from Texas. <laughs> We have a chemistry problem, so it seems. And I sat next to this guy who was about six foot five, and he had on cowboy boots and a 10-gallon hat in his lap, and his name was Tex. And Tex wanted to hit me. And he told me, he said, boy, I'm going to hit you. And I remember thinking, uh, why don't you go hep somebody else? You know, leave me the hell alone. But he was going to hep me. And the first thing he did was he repeated to me in rapid succession all of the AA cliches, one after another. And they are dreary, aren't they? I mean, really. Easy does what? You know, what in the hell are you talking about? And finally he draped his arm around my shoulder and he said, Ah, keep it simple. And I thought, I'll bet you do, Tex. 
I have absolutely no quarrel with that, let me tell you. And he put a handful of pamphlets in my lap. And we have a pamphlet here for everybody, you know, no matter what your aberration is. <laughs> There's a pamphlet here that will cover your case, you know. And, the, and on top of the pamphlet is the card with the 20 questions on it, which is a test that was devised by the medical school at Johns Hopkins that determines who belongs here and who doesn't and whether you're an alcoholic or not. And I, I don't know whether it's, you know, what it means. Uh, I know if you're new and some old-timer wants you to take that test, it's good to take the test. They will treat you better. Yeah. <laughs> so take the test. And the criteria is the 20 questions are if you answer... Uh, the more alcoholic, you become more alcoholic as you answer these questions, if you answer them yes. The, the trick is, if you don't want to belong here, find a way to say no, because the more yes, if you answer one question yes, you may have a drinking problem. If you answer two questions yes, you do indeed have a drinking problem. If you answer three or more yes, you are an alcoholic. And I answered about 14 or 15 of these questions yes, right off the bat. And I, uh, I remember I answered no to the question, do you seek lower companions? <laughs> I could not find any. You know, where the hell do you go? After the Long Beach City Jail. And the meeting began, and it began in much the same way we began here this evening. They read essentially what is our program. And if you're new, and you have heard the refrain in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you want what we have, and that's what we have, those 12 steps. And if you are to recover here, it is required that you take them. It is not merely suggested. That is a lie. <laughs> it is required. There is no requirement for membership here. There is, however, a large requirement for recovery. And that involves taking these 12 steps, 1 through 12. And I listened to them read in that first meeting, as we did here tonight. And I don't know about you, but I didn't hear anything new. None of it was new to me. I'm the end product of eight years of Dominican nuns and four years of Jesuit priests. And I'm going to tell you something. None of this is new. It's not original to AA. All of these principles are well familiar to me. They're in the ethic and the religious tradition in which I was raised and grew up in and have been a part of me all of my life. We, I know all about this. All about all of it. It is not new. We called a lot of it by different names. Searching and fearless moral inventory. Not a new idea. We used to call it examination of conscience. It is precisely the same exercise. Admitting to God and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. I did that every Saturday afternoon from the time I was seven or eight until I was 14 or 15. I know all about And you know what else I know? I know that none of this has anything to do with the way that I drink. Because if it did, I certainly would not have to go to a Presbyterian church on a Friday night. So I sat in the back of that room and I immediately dismissed these steps in my subconscious. It was not a rational decision. I didn't reason it out. I didn't think about all of this. But somewhere in my subconscious I said my case is different. This does not really apply to me. And the meeting continued and it was a good meeting and several people participated and I don't recall what they said but I know that it was innocuous and inapplicable to my life. It certainly didn't have anything to do with me. They were, they, what it was was he's a room full of very nice people who drank too much, came to AA, quit drinking, and went back to being nice people. And so I said to Tex, 
Where do you send the more difficult cases? He says, not. And he said, shut up, or something <laughs> equally as articulate. And uh, the meeting continued. And if I had any doubts as to whether I belonged there or not, they were cured at the end of the meeting because I don't know what you do in, in well, I don't remember what you do up here in the Northwest, but in Southern California, we celebrate anniversaries. We call them birthdays. Birthday parties for alcoholics. I mean, God. <laughs> you know, with cakes and candles on them. I mean, people would, would come up and blow candles off a cake. I mean, Jesus, it was embarrassing. It's like something should take place in a mental institution. You know, really. In the day room, right after dance therapy or some, you know, birthday parties for the alcoholics. And, and they would sing happy birthday to some moron who... Uh, didn't take a drink for a year, and he'd come up and blow the candle out, and I mean, God, it, it, and they had a number of these imbecilic birthday parties, and the last one was for a woman who was about 110, and she was sober forever, because she had a fire on top of this cake, and she got up to the front of the room, and she began to blow the candles out, and I didn't know whether she would make it, or the pulmonary disease would get her first, and got them out, and she got up here, and she said her name was Phoebe, and that she was an alcoholic. And then she said something about, did I want what she had? <laughs> Not tonight, Phoebe. <laughs> and that was my first day AA meeting. And I think you could safely say that I did not have a spiritual awakening. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I did, because it's probably the most significant thing about my life that's worth sharing in AA. For the next three and one half years, I drank no alcohol, I used no mood-altering chemicals, and I stayed busy and active in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I was as active as any AA member in AA. I did everything there was to do. I was active on the group level, in service work, and in institutional work. I made talks, I went to Young People's Convention. did everything there was to do in AA, except one thing. I did not take these steps. And as a result, my alcoholism got worse. And it got worse while I was sober, busy, in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll bet you there are some people here tonight, in a meeting this big there has to be, who are precisely in that state of mind and body. You've been here some appreciable length of time, you're very busy and active in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, but you're not involved with these steps, and you're getting worse. And you're getting worse, and you know you're getting worse. And so does everybody else. I'll tell you. But the way you know you're getting worse is you are surrounded by people who are getting better. And you watch them get better. And you know they're getting better. And you know it's real. You know it's not phony, and you know they have something that you don't have, and it seems as though you'll never get it. Because they seem to know a secret that eludes you, if you're anything at all like me. I, and I, it would make me crazy. I mean, I would watch them. They would come here after me, and something would happen to them. I mean, it was like some, somebody sprinkled fairy dust on them. Or some, you know, it was like they had secret meetings. Have you ever felt that way? Where they, they all met without you and, and shared whatever the hell it was. It, it could not be this. And, you, and if you're like me, you sit here and you're arrogant and you're resentful and, you're, and, you, and you get, and pretty soon you have a whole new set of resentments along with the 
group you brought in here. I mean, you now resent these jerks. And it's just, it's awful way to live. And uh, on the outside, though, wonderful things happened to me. I mean, I got great things happened to me. I, I should tell you, especially this week, I was really struck. The, the violence and the, uh, the horrible lives that people had to grow up in and, and families. I mean, it's just, I can't fathom that. My story is completely different. I, I don't, you know, it's almost, I don't know how you did it. I, I, I've sat here, I, I sat here Friday and almost wept listening to Sandy. I don't, how the hell you survived that? And, and yet, people do. AA is filled with people. My case is completely different. I, you know, I come from this wonderful Irish Catholic family in New Jersey with no other alcoholics in it. I mean, that's heresy in itself, isn't it? In AA. <laughs> but it's true. They're, they're kind and loving and educated and bright and, and nurturing. And, and they always love me. Always, all my life. Never a doubt. I am the fifth child in a family of five kids. I have four older sisters. And my youngest sister is 11 years older than I am. And my father was 50 and my mother was 45 when I was born. In 1940, and that was a big deal, I'll tell you. And along came this boy in this Irish Catholic family with all these girls. And I want to tell you, the prince had arrived. They would, my sisters would fight over who would get to babysit me. They just, you know, it was during the war and they dressed me in soldier suits and sailor suits and I have pictures saluting the flag and would make you throw up. And they, you know, they just loved me so much. My father just, I, my father just worshipped me. I just, he loved me so much. He had this son after all these girls and at that late stage in his life and a, he, I, he, I, he never said a cross word to me till the day he died. He just, you know, he, the sun rose and set on me. He, he, my earliest recollections of Christmas are my father in my bedroom in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve, kneeling down beside the bed, and he would wake me up and say, I just saw the sleigh leave. Let's go downstairs. And the entire family would get up at 4 a.m. and go downstairs and celebrate Christmas because he couldn't wait till morning. I mean, it's... <laughs> And that was the way that I was raised. I was loved and cared for and nurtured and given a good set of values, a sense of discipline. All of that was mine. Uh, we were affluent. My father was vice president of a railroad. We had, I was privileged. I, I never went to a day of public school. All of this, and it was a gift. And, and, and yet I'm here with you. <laughs> and what that tells me is none of that the, the violent, horrible childhoods or mine have anything to do with why anybody's an alcoholic. They're not even remotely connected. We're here because we're 10%, we represent one out of 10 people who can't drink alcohol. When we drink alcohol, something happens to us that does not happen to them, and that's why we're here and they're not. And it doesn't matter where you've come from or what happened to you, it's just the way that it is. And no one knows any more about why that is now than they did 60 years ago in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, Ohio. It's they know just as much now as they know then. Nobody knows why we're here. But we're here. We can't drink. That's why we're here. And I should also tell you that I am, uh, the end, I am a product of the Roman Catholic Church. You can't get to be more of a product of the Roman Catholic Church than me. I mean, I, you know, and I must tell you, I was not tortured by evil nuns or warped by demented priests. 
uh, I was not taught about, uh, you know, I was going to go to hell when I was... I, I don't know where these people heard that. I didn't hear that. Uh, my religion, the evangelism of my religion is uh, this wonderful good news that you're forgiven for everything. Which I thought was great news, quite frankly, <laughs> as the years went by especially. So I didn't... What I'm trying to tell you is my alcoholism is not the fault of the Roman Catholic Church. And neither is yours, incidentally, uh, <laughs> if you're trying to hang it on them. They are not going to accept the responsibility. You, you, when you finally write a searching and fearless moral inventory here, if, when you finally do that, if you're anything at all like me, you're going to get some real bad news. Uh, the worst news I ever got. And that is my life is my fault. And if you don't get that news, you didn't do it right. <laughs> but that's the information you're supposed to get from that. And at any rate, I, uh, my parents died within one week of each other when I was 12. My father had a massive uh, MI and a heart attack and dropped dead. And my mother, who'd had congestive heart failure for a long time, uh, kind of quit after that. She died one week later. We had these two huge... Uh, Irish Catholic funerals in the space of 10 days, and it was, a, it was a devastating thing for a 12-year-old kid, there's no question. But I was surrounded by this people, these family who loved me. My sisters now were all married and had started families of their own, and they all fought over who I was going to go to live with. They wanted to, you know, all of them wanted me. I was always wanted. So there was never... I ended up going to live with my uncle, my mother's brother, who was a 65-year-old bachelor. Now, you might find that strange, but he was a very powerful man. He was a uh, politician in the state of New Jersey. He was mayor of Jersey City for 27 consecutive years, uh, as a matter of fact. He was state chairman of the Democratic Party, and he was a quintessential Irish bachelor politician right out of a book. And he uh, decided that I should live with him, that he was going to see to it, that I was educated, and that I... Uh, received what I needed in life, and uh, he was the best one to provide it, and so I went to live with my Uncle John. Now, he was 65 and I was 12. We had a communications problem. Uh, he was an old world man. Uh, he, men like my uncle barely exist anymore. He was, uh, 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 he went to mass and communion every day of his life, and he never married, and he wore dark blue pinstripe suits and white shirts and ties. He, that's the way he dressed on Saturday morning. You know, I mean, he, and we, every evening we ate, ate dinner at opposite ends of a long dining room table in coats and ties, and we talked politics. And that's what we did. That was the mother's milk of our family, and uh, uh, he talked to me like I was 50, you know, and I would answer him like I was 50. I suppose it was worse. And, uh, and I went... Continue. I went to uh, four different Jesuit prep schools. The reason I went to four different Jesuit prep schools is I was thrown out of the one I was in every year <laughs> for drinking or some kind of misbehavior connected to drinking or both. And when I was a senior uh, in high school, I was due to give the valedictory address at my graduation. I was number one in my class, and uh, I did not get to give the address. I did not even get to attend graduation. A graduation was in May, and I got drunk in April and stole a priest's car and went joyriding and got thrown out of school. 
and they invited me not even to come to graduation. And as a matter of fact, if they ever had a reunion, don't come to that either. You know, it, that's the way that I left high school. And I went to, uh, to a, a great university, in, an Ivy League university in upstate New York, and uh, began my undergraduate career in Ithaca, New York. And I want you to know that I was drunk uh, my entire undergraduate years. I was in blackout drinker. I don't even remember much about being an undergrad at Cornell, except that I was in blackouts almost all of the time. I had managed to be a very good student in blackouts. Uh, I was in trouble. I was on disciplinary probation every semester in the 60s. <laughs> Do you know how hard that was? I mean, that, that was like a, you know, they were burning the campus down, and I'm in trouble for being drunk. I mean, it was in Congress. I would be an obnoxious drunk at fraternity parties. I, they would, you want to get away from me, and people did get away from me, and I would end up alone, and I would fall asleep and pass out in cars in February in Ithaca, New York, and snowbanks. I mean, when, one night the rescue squad had to come and get me out of a car. He was damn near froze to death. I came out of a blackout one morning in a sorority house uh, in this young lady's room uh, with the house mother standing over the bed, which is a hideous, uh, you know, asking me what I was doing there. I mean, I don't know. I suppose the young lady needed to be tutored. I don't know why, why, why I'd be there. And that's the way I went through undergrad school. In the middle of my senior year, I got in an argument with my uncle over money and uh, I was going to show him who was going to be captain of my destiny, and it was not going to be him, so I quit school and joined the Navy as an enlisted man. I left an Ivy League university in the second semester of my senior year with a 3.8 GPA in biochemistry to join the Navy as an enlisted man. I was a very bright kid. And I was on track to go to medical school, so what they did with me in the Navy is they made me a, they sent me to hospital course school, be a hospital foreman. And they sent me to Great Lakes, uh, Illinois, right outside of Chicago, and I went to hospital course school. I did very well, graduated number one in the class, and they sent me to a more advanced medical school where they train corpsmen to be on destroyers where they don't have doctors and more advanced medical training. I did very well in that school. And then they sent me to medical administration school. Teach me about medical administration. I did very well in that school. First two and a half years, and that's what I did. I went to school in the Navy and did very well because I was in a controlled environment. And I did very well. And they commissioned me an officer. They made me an ensign in the Medical Service Corps and uh, sent me to the uh, 3rd Marine Division on Okinawa as a medical administrative officer. And I reported to the 3rd Marine Division, and they didn't have a job for me. They couldn't figure out what the hell to do with me, so they put me in an officer's club at the northern end of Okinawa, and they forgot about me. <laughs> and I forgot about them. But <laughs> frankly, it was a mutual thing. And my, what I did every day is I got up every morning and reported to the cocktail lounge of this uh, officer's <laughs> club and drank Haig and Haig Pinch at 60 cents a, a shot, which is not bad, I will tell you. And that's what I did, and they left me alone, and I left them alone, and finally, they put another guy up there, and he was a surgeon at a Temple University who was a, a bad drunk, and they didn't want him around patients. So they put him up in this officer's club. He was a thoracic surgeon out of Temple, and he and I bonded. We became brothers. And uh, they left us both alone, and we kind of forgot we were in the military. We grew beards and wore shorts, and uh, at one point, we lost all our uniforms. You know where the hell they were. You know, just, it's what we did. 
And finally, the uh, regimental commander of the 5th Marines had a dinner party, uh, this colonel, and we had to appear at this dinner party, and uh, we had to go scrounge uniforms together and shave and get dressed and show up at this dinner party. And uh, the colonel looked around, and he looked at us, and he said, who are they? You know, <laughs> here were two officers in his command that he had never met. And he said, what do they do? And they said, well, they, one's a doctor, and I don't know what the other guy is, but they live up at the officers' club. And uh, he said, give them a job. You know, they, need, they should be put to work. So we were put in charge of venereal disease control for the island of Okinawa. <laughs> and what we did was the Marines would get uh, gonorrhea and syphilis and lymphogranuloma venereum. They would hideous venereal disease that you only saw in textbooks and in Marines. Uh, <laughs> the only two places they ever turned up. And our job was to go out into the villages where the young ladies were in the bars and find them and treat them and make sure that they did not spread the good cheer any further. And, uh, and we had this power to quarantine the bars. You know, we would. Uh, so what we did was we rode all over Okinawa in a jeep from bar to bar. <laughs> so we did. And they would see us coming and they would set up the scotch for free because they didn't want to get closed up. And we, uh, we never quarantined one bar, ever. <laughs> So it was not bad duty. And we finished our tour of duty in Okinawa. We came back to the United States, and uh, he went back to Temple, and he completed his residency in cardiovascular surgery. And that's what he is today. He's a uh, cardiovascular surgeon in Philadelphia, and he's yet to go to AA. I guess the moral to that story is if you need a bypass, stay the hell out of Philadelphia. <laughs> but he teaches at Temple. He's on the faculty at Temple. And I went... Uh, Got out of the Navy and went up to Cornell, and I finished my last semester, and I got my undergrad degree, and I applied at uh, several different medical schools, some of the very best in the country, and I was tentatively accepted at a couple with the proviso that I had social problems and that I should uh, go out into the world and work for a year, and then reapply, and perhaps I would be a candidate for a medical career. And so I went out in the world to fulfill that requirement. I've never made it back, as it turned out. Uh, the first thing I did was get married. I don't know if you ever saw that as a reasonable solution to what was wrong with you, but do you remember when you, at that time in your life when you were confused and you were groping and you knew there was something really wrong with you? You weren't re really ready quite to label it alcoholism, but you knew you had something wrong with you that was not wrong with your peers. They seemed to be socializing and marrying and starting families and completing their educations and beginning careers. And if you're like me, you were different and you, you were stuck, somehow stuck, and you didn't know why and you didn't know quite how to get out of it. So the remedy for that is to be like them and to get married. So I married a young lady who I knew in the Navy, was a Navy nurse, and we got a beautiful girl and we got, got married immediately. And she immediately became pregnant, which is a... Uh, just, it just seemed to happen with lightning warp speed, you know. Then wham! And I'm like, whoa! You know, Jesus, pregnant. What do you mean pregnant? Pregnant. Whew. So we, we moved to Southern California. She was an only child, and her family, her parents were still alive in Southern California, and I had applied to SC to go to medical school, and I got accepted for the fall semester. And we moved in with her parents in uh, Santa Ana, California. Uh, I'd never met them until the day we moved in. And here we were pregnant wife, new in-laws, and I needed a summer job. And I got a summer job as a bartender. It was a dreadful, dreadful, I mean, I would be coming home at five o'clock in the morning, drunk and half-dressed, and uh, my new in-laws 
did not respond well to that, as you might imagine. And after three weeks of that, they threw me out, and uh, uh, she got rid of me, they got rid of me. I found myself on Bolsa Avenue in Santa Ana, California, with very little money and a lot of Samsonite luggage. And I got a job for the rest of the summer as an ambulance driver in Orange County. And I drove an ambulance in blackout drunk uh, through the rest of that summer. And some of those ambulance calls were colorful, I will tell you. Uh, I'm a blackout drinker, so I have been on ambulance calls when the lights and the sirens are going, and I have to turn to the attendant next to me and say, uh, where are we going? You know, which would unnerve him, I will tell you. <laughs> I, the end of my career as an ambulance driver came one night in Newport Beach, uh, going around a circle in a cul-de-sac. You know, yeah, you lock on to something and you can't. With the red light's going on top, just going slowly around this cul-de-sac. And red light was going into these people's bedroom windows and they were all coming out on the porch in their pajamas watching this ambulance go around the circle. And Finally, the police car had to come in and lead me out of the cul-de-sac and how we got out. That way, they, uh, I lost my job uh, as a result of that. And my driver's license, even, I was revoked forever or so, it seemed. And that's kind of the package I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, that's who I was when I got here. And uh, in, in, in the late 60s, a new profession opened up in civilian medicine. It was called the Physician's Assistant Program. And it was a brand new medical profession in which, uh, and the reason for it was, is all of these guys coming out of the medical schools were all going into re specialty residencies, and uh, there was a shortage of guys doing uh, primary care medicine in the emergency rooms. And uh, my, people like me who had this rather sophisticated medical training in the military, we were the first PAs. I was the third licensed PA in the state of California, as a matter of fact. And I got a very good job, nights, in an emergency room in East L.A., and it was, I'll tell you, it was really, a, but I loved it. It was great. It was exciting. And it was, it was you know, there were stabbings and shootings and, and industrial injuries from Kaiser Steel and the glass company all poured into that emergency room. And I triaged that place, and that's what I did. And it was very, uh, you know, I made a lot of money. They paid a lot of money to us initially. And, and it was uh, just a good job. And on the ground floor of a new profession, sober and alcoholics anonymous, I met another girl, a beautiful girl, a daughter of a longtime sober AA member. We fell in love. We got married. She went to Al-Anon. We were just too precious is what we were. I mean, you know, nice young couple. I mean, really, uh, I had such a bright future, and she was beautiful, and it was just going to be so great. Except I had not taken these steps, and there was no recovery. And I'd go into this emergency room at night, and I would get depressed, and I would get those terrible feelings of inadequacy and that overwhelming sensation that I was not up to the task and, and that I was inadequate in almost every area of my life. And I, and I don't have a spiritual program, but I have an excellent medical education. So I know how to deal with depression. I take Dexedrine. 15 milligram spantules work best. And by the time I was through with those, I was taking six or seven of them a day. And if you know anything at all about amphetamine abuse, you will understand. That has you moving right along, I'll tell you. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, it will be in a hurry. <laughs> but the problem with that is long about the fourth or fifth day when you've not slept nor eaten, 
and your hair stands right out on end like that, or your eyes dilate over here like this, and you show up in the emergency room to help the sick. It does not look good, I will tell you. The guy you were leaving never wants to go home. You know, they're always saying things like, Vince, Vince, you need sleep. Get something to eat. But thank God, there's an anecdote for that. The anecdote for that is a drug called Demerol. And Demerol is, uh, an, it's not a narcotic, it's a synthetic. But trust me, you never know the difference. It's, a, it's not, <laughs> purely an academic exercise. But I want to say something about this, because this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think we ought to talk about this. Narcotic addiction and alcoholism are different. They are not the same. And don't let anyone tell you that they are, because they're not. Narcotics, uh, morphine, heroin, dilaudid, they're all one drug, and they all come from opium, all of them. They're all opiates, and they're all, and they're all common. They all do the same thing to you, and they do the same thing to everybody. They're addictive. Physiologically and psychologically for everybody. You inject heroin intravenously, you will be addicted. Period. Case closed. You don't need to have an addictive personality. You just need a syringe and a needle. <laughs> and you will be addicted. That's what happens with narcotics. That is not the same with alcohol. We represent only one out of ten. Nine out of ten people who drink alcohol are not like us. They are social drinkers. They don't ever, they don't wreck families, they don't lose jobs, they don't destroy homes, they don't, they don't ever come to AA. <laughs> They're social drinkers, and I don't understand them. They say things that are preposterous, like, no more for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm driving. Jesus. Well, I'd love to have another, but my wife's waiting dinner. I'll go home now. I mean, that's ridiculous. But that's the way that 9 out of 10 people who drink alcohol drink. And, you know, we represent 1 out of 10. And that's because apparently alcohol, as Clancy says, does something for and to us that it does not do for and to other people, those other 9 people. And on the other hand, I have never met a social heroin user. <laughs> it is a different dynamic. And I believe that alcoholics drink to fit in and you inject narcotics to drop out. You're going two different places. Quite often we're not sure where we want to go, <laughs> so we take both. <laughs> but that's the difference. And the other problem with Demerol, the other overwhelming terrible problem with Demerol is that people care about where it is. You know, the, the, they come in in the morning and the Demerols, oh, they open the narcotic drawer and all the dope is gone. And they say things like, Vince, where in the hell is the Demerol? And I have to say, I don't know. <laughs> Which would be bad. And the people who care the most about where the Demerol is is the Medical Quality Assurance Board for the state of California. They have a grave concern about Demerol. They showed up in that emergency room early one Thursday morning and placed me under arrest. They charged me with appropriating narcotics for my own use, which is a felony. Well, there were no programs for impaired physicians in those days. That's a recent... Uh, and th the program for impaired physicians in those days was the Los Angeles County Jail. 
and that's where they took me, and they booked me through, and they charged me with this felony. It was subsequently reduced to a misdemeanor, and I didn't have to do any jail time, but I lost my medical license. And the long and short of it is I spent the summer of 1972 living in an apartment by the airport in Englewood, drinking one half gallon of vodka a day. And I don't have to tell you about that kind of drinking. Uh, everybody knows about that. And that's the way it ended for me. Uh, uh, and your experience, if you drink a half gallon of vodka a day, your experience is precisely the same. They're all uniform, aren't they? You vomit bile, and you're in and out of blackouts, and you don't know what day it is. If you look at a clock, and it's, what is it, 9 o'clock, is that a.m. or p.m.? You have no idea. You, if you're like me, you lose 35 pounds over that summer. My wife leaves, and they take the car and the furniture, and the, there's just me left with very little money and hardly any clothes and, and, uh, soup, and buying vodka by the half gallon from Alpha Beta Supermarket. <laughs> Supermarket brand vodka. $7 a half gallon, the kind they have in the wire basket by the cash register. Take it home and drink it hot in August. I mean, right? I mean, it's genteel drinking, isn't it? Uh, the cocktail hour at our house. You know. And I remember one day the telephone guy came to disconnect the phone, and I was sitting in the middle of the floor with no furniture in an old Turkish bathrobe with this half gallon of vodka, and he looked at me and he said, oh, God, he said, this is really sad. He said, you lost your family, didn't you? I said, no, we're redecorating. You know, <laughs> what do you think? And that was uh, 1972. I came out of a blackout in Newport Beach, and I don't remember how I even got there, except that was mid-September of 1972, and I was sitting on a bench by the Balboa Peninsula in Newport Beach, and I had on a, the temperature was about 110, and I had on this three-piece wool suit and a white shirt and a tie, and it was just some luggage next to me, and I don't remember packing my clothes, and I don't remember going down to Newport Beach. I don't know how I got there, except there I was. And I, I knew I needed a job, and I got an Orange County newspaper, and I started going through the classified ads, and I found a job uh, with a mortician as an apprentice embalmer, which is a god-awful job. If you knew and you need a job, don't do that. <laughs> and the undertaker was a ghoul. He was just a dreadful <laughs> Christ. He was awful. The most depressing, uh, you know, the, the job paid $85 a week and a fringe benefit was this bachelor apartment over the room where they kept the caskets. Every morning you get to walk through the casket room with a hangover. Which is, set you free, boy, I'll tell you. It's just like, and I didn't like him and he didn't like me and I got drunk and stole his hearse. And, uh, on September the 20th, 1972, I came out of what I hope is my last blackout, driving the wrong way on Pacific Coast Highway in Newport Beach in a stolen hearse with a young lady next to me who I did not recall meeting, who was uh, screaming at the top of her lungs. Rage, you know, just crazy. And it seemed to me that I, you know, I really know why that happens to me. I, I am, I have a flaw. I, the women I pick are unstable. Really are. I seem to choose neurotic women. I really do. They, the women in my life all end up like that. They, they end up hysterical. And uh, and they all, it's really, and they, she had that look that they get, you know, they, if you're with me, the, you, if you're a woman and you're with me, you get this look. And I always know the date is over, you know. The, you always have the mascara running down here, you know, the, the make, eye makeup is all over your face, and it's really, I always know, well, I, this evening is over. <laughs> and I remember telling her, you know, you really are unstable, you should... Uh, Get some counseling or do something. Now, that was September the 20th, 1972. 
I have not had a drink of alcohol, nor have I used any mood-altering chemical from that day to this. And that, what's really amazing about that is that you could, if you would ever would have told me, if you'd have materialized the back of that hearse on Coast Highway in Newport Beach, and you said for the next 28-plus uh, years, you're not going to drink any alcohol or use any drink. You're going back to AA. And your experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is going to be completely different. It's going to be a completely different experience. And the reason is because for the first time in your life, you will be desperate. You will be desperate enough to take actions you know won't work and direction from people you do not like. And if you are that, I believe that is the requirement for recovery here. I think if you're desperate, if you're new, I hope you're desperate. Others will wish you love and happiness. I'll save that for them. I wish you desperation. <laughs> Utter, abject desperation. I think your chances improve radically the more desperate you are. And I was desperate in September of 1972. And I came back to AA. I went to an Alano club in Costa Mesa, California, which was a dreadful, god-awful place. It was, uh, you know, oh, there was, it had a noontime meeting there. I mean, oh, God. It was depressing. And I went to that meeting. They had another meeting there. And I ended up getting some money together and renting a room on Federal Avenue in Costa Mesa for $11 a week. And if you've ever seen, $11 a week rooms are all the same. They're generic, aren't they? They're all the same. <laughs> And it was a dreadful, disgusting place. I remember moving in there thinking, I can't live here. I mean, I, my God, I'll be, have to be here several weeks until I can figure something out. Two years later, when I moved out of that room, <laughs> it did not look that bad because everything changed. Everything changed. My first two years of sobriety were spent in Orange County. And if you would have asked me at any given moment during that time, how was your life? I would tell you my life is terrible. It's awful. It's oh God. Oh, I mean, I got and lost jobs you wouldn't believe. I lost a job as a gas station attendant for being incompetent. <laughs> I lost a job as a $1.87 an hour drill press operator, where you walked in you re and you sat on a stool and pulled a handle. It's very difficult to do that wrong. And I managed to put the, wrong, the hole in the wrong place on 1,000 copper plates one day. And, they, and the foreman came up and told me, he said, he was from outside of Dallas somewhere. He said, uh, I got to tell you something, boy. He said, you're not quite bright enough to do this kind of work. He said, it's too bad. I can see you're a real trier. And I remember telling him, you talking to me, you jackass? Do you, I went to an Ivy League university. I went to, and that was a mistake, boy, to tell him that, you know. Because he said, well, I'll tell you what, boy. You ought to go back, take the course and drill press operating, you know. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. I remember going back to this $11 room, a week room that day, and it was pouring rain. I got soaking wet, and I had bronchitis, and I had a fever, and I didn't have any medical insurance. And I, God, how the hell, you know, and I got back to this crummy room, and some mail had caught up with me. And one was a letter from a physician in upstate New York inviting me to join a committee for my college class reunion. I remember reading this letter and thinking, how the hell did this happen? The incongruity of this, my life, how could this be? How could I be here? How do I answer this letter? Can't make it this year, Dr. Medoff. I just lost my job as a drill press operator. God damn it. It is preposterous how this could happen to me. And that night I went to the big meeting down on the Belleville Peninsula, a big speaker meeting like this. It was a great meeting down on the, the peninsula, the, the Ebel Club. Sandy remembers that. And it was a great AA meeting. It was 
And the speaker that night was one of the quintessential speakers in Alcoholics Anonymous, a guy by the name of Norm Alpey, who was a wonderful, wonderful speaker. He was, I'll tell you what Norm Alpey, Norm Alpey was, uh, if Frank Capra invented an AA speaker, it would be Norm Alpey. He was this great, great guy, like Jimmy Stewart, and, and he would, uh, he told this story, this wrote AA talk. And he never changed a word. It was the same verbatim every time you heard it. But every time you heard him, it was as though that was the first time you heard him. Uh, the music of Alcoholics Anonymous was always in his talk. And I listened to him that night, and I would like to tell you that I was motivated or inspired, and I, and I wasn't. I was just terribly depressed and so alone. And I went back to that room, and I had to walk through the rain for the second time that day. And I was coughing, and I, had a, I just got back to that dreadful room, and I went in that room, and I was so desperate that I did something so stupid. I can't believe I ever did it. I got on my knees beside the bed and said a prayer. And it was not a sophisticated prayer. It was very, it was, God, please help me. I am alone, and I can't make it anymore. I believe my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous began that night. And I would like to tell you, now I didn't get up the morning and have a flash of Bill Wilson bright light, but I went back to that Alano Club and I stayed sober and I acquired some material possessions. I got a, an old beat up Chevrolet, a 1964 red Chevrolet convertible with no brakes and the hole in the top. And I pull that into the parking lot down at the Ebell Club. <laughs> where they all had Mercedes and BMWs and it would immediately put them on the other side of the lot. And they would say things to me like, do you have insurance on that car? I hadn't had a driver's license in three years. Why the hell would I have insurance? And pretty soon I was two years sober and I knew what I had to do. And I had to do something that was appalling to me. Uh, I needed it. I did not have a sponsor. I don't recommend that if you're a newbie. And the reason I didn't have a sponsor is I knew who it had to be. And I did not like the idea, I will tell you. This guy was a, a big guest speaker in AA. He talked all over the place, and he was a dynamic, uh, charismatic personality, and he was a, uh, just a, but he was, boy, I'll tell you, he seemed to me he was cruel to new people. That's what it seemed to me to be. And he always had this coterie of people he took with him, and they'd get his coffee and get his seat, and I'd, oh, Jesus, it'd make me crazy. But there was something about him that was absolutely indisputable. He had an amazing capacity to help the losers in Alcoholics Anonymous. They'd, we'd see them leave Orange County. They'd, they'd get him for a sponsor, and they'd join his fascist AA group on the west side of Los Angeles, and they would be transformed human beings. They would turn up in Orange County, and you would see them. And my God, I never forget one guy, Tank Top Red, the biker. I'll never forget him. He was a, this guy. He was the most disreputable human being that ever came to Alcoholics Anonymous. He was, he had a pint of Canadian club in his pocket at the meetings. He had no teeth, and he always wanted to fight and maim people. And, the, you know, God damn. You saw red in the meeting, and you thought, oh, Jesus, you know, not tonight. <laughs> and uh, he got this guy for a sponsor, and he moved to West L.A., and he dropped out of sight. And six months later, we were sitting in a meeting in Newport Beach, and uh, somebody said, hey, look in the back, there's red. And I looked in the back of the room, and I, there he was, except he wasn't recognizable. He had all his dental work done and he was clean shaven, and he had on gray slacks and a blue blazer and penny loafers. <laughs> he's sitting, and they called him up to talk, and he came up to the podium, and he said six months prior to that evening, he'd made his first child support payment in 10 years. 
and next month he was voting in the presidential election for the Republican. That'd really push you over the edge, I'll tell you. And I called this guy and I asked him to help me. And he said, well, come down and have lunch with me on this mission, this mission that I run down on Skid Row in Los Angeles. So I drove my beat-up old Chevy down to uh, the Midnight Mission on Los Angeles Street in, uh, in Los Angeles on that fateful day in October of 1974. And I went in and I had lunch with this guy. And I asked him to help me. And I'll never forget what he said. And if you are new here tonight, I hope someone says something like this to you someday. He said, I will help you under one condition, that you can accept the very simple proposition that your best judgment about your life is terrible and that my judgment about your life is infinitely better than yours. And if you will do everything I suggest you do without debate, I will help you. Well, I was just desperate enough that day to make that unholy pact with the devil. <laughs> I agreed to do what he said. And the first thing he told me, he said, where do you live? I said, well, I live in this apartment in Newport Beach. And he says, well, I want you to move into this mission here and live here. I said, you don't understand. I, you know, I'm looking for upward mobility. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you just shut up and do what I say? Which always kind of baffled me. You know, I never had a reply to that. And I said, yes, sir, and I'll do what you say. And he said, I want you to live here. And he said, I have an assignment for you. Every day during the week, I want you to put on that three-piece suit in the morning and come down to my office, and I'm going to give you an allowance. I'm going to give you $8 a day. I want you to take that $8, go outside, and get on the bus that runs up Wilshire Boulevard. And as you get on the bus, ask the driver for a handful of transfers, because every time you come to a medical facility between downtown Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley, get off the bus, go in, find somebody in administration, tell them you're sober two years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you need, you need help getting a job and your medical license back. See what happens. Now, I thought that was probably the most preposterous, ridiculous idea I had ever heard. But I said, yes, sir. And so I, every morning I did what he said. I knew it wouldn't work. And I was right. It didn't work. I mean, I knew it wouldn't work. And I'd tell him that, too. I'd say, not working today. <laughs> Won't work tomorrow, either. And he'd say, just shut up and be down here in that suit. And I'd show up in his office and I'd get that lousy eight bucks and I'd go outside and I'd get on that crummy bus and I'd go up Wilshire Boulevard and I'd stop at every hospital and medical facility. I went to Good Samaritan and UCLA and St. John's and Santa Monica and every, and I went to the Elmer Belt Urological Clinic. I went to every, and I didn't, nobody could help me and they told me it's nice you're in AA but we can't help you. And I'd go back and I'd tell them, I'd say, see, this doesn't work. And he'd say, come down here tomorrow. And I did what he said. And at the end of the day, I'd end up in West L.A. and I'd go to one of the Pacific Group meetings and then I'd take the bus back down to this mission. I lived there eight months. Eight months. And the worst day of my life was a Friday in, November of, in, in June of 1975. I went down to his office and I got that $8 and I went outside to get on that bus and I, I just... I was depressed and I knew it wasn't going to work. And the first thing I did when I got on that bus is I sat down in this huge wad of chewing gum. Got it all over the back of my trousers. And I rode the bus up to halfway up Wilshire Boulevard to Western Avenue, and I got off, and I went to this gas station, and I found myself standing in the men's room of this dirty gas station with 
my trousers in this hand and wet paper towels in this hand trying to clean chewing gum. I mean, I just, I looked in the mirror and I thought, you are grotesque. <laughs> grotesque. You're, you're uh, I mean, I'm two years and eight months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I live in a mission on Skid Row. The only Ivy Leaguer there, I'll tell you. And I have, you know, I have nothing. I mean, I am a loser. Loser. Look loser up in the dictionary. My picture will be there. That's who I am. And I thought, I can't handle it anymore today. I can't go into anywhere. I'm not going to ask for a job. I'm not going to get another rejection. I don't want to hear no. I'll go. Maybe if I sit in a movie, I won't drink. That's where I am. I might drink, but if I go to the movie, maybe I won't. So I put my pants back on. I rode to the end of the line, and I got off in the Santa Monica by the ocean. I went into this cafeteria, you know, where you get the tray, and you go down, you get your lunch, and you set it down. And I got my lunch, and I set it down outside to buy an L.A. Times, and the busboy came by and took my lunch, busted the tray, you know. That's the way it was. That's the kind of a day it was. And I, I walked from Santa Monica to Westwood Village, where the UCLA campus is, and to go to the movie, and I stood in line at the Bruin Theater, to buy a ticket to the film Godfather 2. And I, I stood in line to, to buy my ticket and someone called my name and I turned around and came face to face with the administrator of the medical center in which I had been arrested in for Demerol. And he said, Vince, how are you? He said, where in the hell have you been? And I said, well, I'm sober in AA and I've been there over two years. And he said, you look great. He said, you look great. And he put his arms around me and he started to cry. He was so glad to see me. And he said, when have you worked last? And I said, I haven't worked in a long time. He said, it's really amazing. We have a urologist that's just joined the practice who's a member of the Medical Quality Assurance Board. And he's going to be down in the clinic tomorrow. I want you to come down. I'm going to introduce you to him. We're going to have lunch. Maybe he can help you get your license back. And if he can, how would you like a job? I went down to the clinic that next morning. I met that urologist. We had lunch. He wrote some letters. Within 60 days, my medical license was restored in the state of California. I went back to work in the very same emergency room in which I was arrested in for stealing the Demerol. And I worked there for the next two and a half years. And uh, no Demerol was missing. And the patients got good care. I know. I gave it to them. I took these steps, 1 through 12 exactly as they're outlined in this book. I wrote that searching and fearless moral inventory. And if you're new, you'll have to do that. You must do that. And the word moral is in there not by mistake. It's a moral inventory. It's not a psychological inventory. It's not designed to get you in touch with your feelings. We do not care how you feel here. We only care about what you do. If you take action, you will feel differently. That is the evangelism of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did that. And my life flourished. And wonderful things happened to me. Great things. I have a magnificent life. I mean a great life. Your life, no lives get better than mine in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to tell you. And that isn't to say I haven't made mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes. All of the mistakes that you can make sober. In 1976, I met this cute little redhead. I met her in September. We, we got married in October and divorced in November. That is a mistake. And the last time I saw her, she was on the way back to her daddy's ranch in El Dorado, Texas. <laughs> but I didn't drink and I didn't run and my life flourished. And I got into a new profession. And, it counts. and then I met a girl 
who got sober in 1975, who was uh, uh, married to a man who had lung cancer and he was dying, and, and, and she, that's how she got sober, taking care of a dying husband with lung cancer, which is not a small task, I will tell you. And she was, uh, we're older and heavier now, but I'll tell you, she had a great body, and I noticed her right away. Uh, she was dynamite in a bikini. Boy, all the guys would, you know, they were all had their eye on her. And, uh, and uh, we became friends, she and I. And I mean just friends. And she took care of her husband and he passed away and we started to date and we fell in love and we got married. And we've been married for 21 years. And the great gift of Alcoholics Anonymous with my track record is I can tell you that I love my wife with more with every breath I take. I love her more today than I did when we got married. That is a gift. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous. Certainly if you're me. I mean, in my family, as far as anybody can track, there have been a total of four divorces. Three of them are mine. <laughs> so, this is amazing that this could happen to me. But we have a great marriage. And we have a great life. And we've had all the things that happened to you over 21 years happen to us. We had great success, made a huge amount of money, owned a great house, drive Mercedes, all of that. Then we lost it all. The laws changed, the business changed, the heart attacks, bypass surgery. I mean, Jesus, it all happened. But we survived it all, and our, and our, and our marriage never, it got stronger throughout it all. So if you're new and you're young here, there's great hope for a life. And that's what you should know. And if you're new and young and male here, I have, I have some information for you. I hope, please listen to this closely. Women are not the enemy. They are your loving equal partners. You walk this way together. They are your partners, not your prisoner, not your hostage, and not your servants. If you know this when you're young, you will save yourself untold years of terrible grief. <laughs> Hear it now. Love your wife. Cherish her. And you will be so grateful. And you will have such a magnificent life. I certainly have. And if you're new, I hope that you stay. Uh, I certainly have uh, been privileged to be here this weekend. And I'm glad to be with you, and I look forward to hearing from Mary tomorrow. And I want to tell you about this sponsor. He's still my sponsor today. And it's 27 years now. And I'm going to tell you something about him. He's not cruel at all. I'm going to tell you some things a lot of people don't know about him. He is a kind, loving man. And he is, contrary to popular belief, a patient man. And if you doubt that, go sit in his office some weekday morning. And listen to him take phone calls. And you'll find out that he is. Uh, I love him very much. And I'm glad he's in my life. And I am glad you're in my life. And I hope we hear music for the rest of the weekend. Thank you.